Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, thou shalt say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you are visiting with us, again, we welcome you. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, your being here is encouragement to us, and we hope that we can encourage you in some way. Joe Namath, great, great quarterback of the past, a Hall of Famer. Many of you may remember that last December, the very embarrassing moment. He would probably classify it as the most embarrassing moment of his life. Is a televised game across the nation it's between the Patriots and the Jets. And you know how sometimes during the game, ESPN will have someone on the side to give an interview, just a quick five-second, ten-second clip. And so no doubt they had to interview the great Joe Namath. And so the announcers made the cutaway to go to Susie Colby. When they went to her, she's standing there, a little short lady against the big Joe Namath. And she says something very intelligent in the area of football, and it, it escapes me exactly what the line was, but then turns to him for a response. And he looks down at the little lady, and with slurred speech, he says, I just want to kiss you. And of course, it's live television, and she's somewhat startled. She ignores the statement and makes another statement. And he again looks at her and says, I just want to kiss you. And so they broke away from her, that interview. Later, Joe Namath would speak of that embarrassing time. And he says these words, I'm very disappointed with my behavior because of how I've embarrassed my family and the people that I work with and my friends and all. Every time that something in my life has gone askew, alcohol has been involved. From there, he talked about how he'd been drinking since 3 o'clock that afternoon, and how since then, he had checked himself into a treatment center. He stated in that interview, his goal was to be able to stop drinking alcohol completely, because he wanted those situations in life that were so embarrassing to cease. This morning, we look at a challenging topic. You see, we're not just talking about an immorality in America that's little. We're talking about this morning the number one drug problem in America. As we think about the number one drug problem in America, it's number one, first of all, because it 
is related to the most deaths every year. 55% of all of the highway accidents, and now, if you'll note, they're being described now as crashes. They're not being described as accidents because the highway department says that it's not an accident when someone is driving 85 miles an hour in a 55. It's a crash. It's not an accident when someone is driving under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Those are decisions that people have calculated and they have made, and so therefore now they're called crashes. And so we have all driven by accident scenes, and we have seen uh, the dead, if you will, at accident scenes. And so if we drive across America, and every time we see those, half of those individuals, sometimes they're the innocent individuals, but half are dying at those scenes because of the number one drug problem in America today. In addition to that, second behind heart disease, alcohol is the number one killer in America today. 500,000 lives are claimed each year with diseases related to this drug. But not only because of the deaths, but also because of the addictions. Now, the numbers vary here, so I don't claim this morning to give you accurate numbers because I could read many different numbers from many different sources. But some of the very best numbers would be 7 million Americans today addicted to alcohol. But yet other numbers you read say that there's as many as 33 million that are either alcoholics or have serious problems relating to alcohol. And so we see that the numbers are staggering. And the truth is, the numbers change every day. Because the individual that up to this point in their life, they've been able to handle the drink. Every day there's a new individual that can no longer handle the drink, but the drink is now handling them. And so because of it being the number one addiction in America today, we talk about a huge challenge. But also we talk about the misery. How many children are suffering in homes now because alcohol has a strong influence in that home? How many parents are having a very difficult time being the loving, compassionate parent that they ought to be because alcohol has a control in their life? How many parents are struggling at this time because they have a child that has the problem of alcohol influencing their life? When marriages are made, isn't it ironic that in our culture today across America, one of the usual pictures taken is that of the bride and the groom toasting an alcoholic beverage when it's proven that that has impacted so many marriages in such a terrible fashion. Without even knowing as I was writing this lesson, a woman has deserted her three-year-old. He's found out in the middle of the streets on Thursday night this week at 11 o'clock. She's arrested while trying to steal a car under the influence. 
three other kids are in other people's care in addition to the one that's in the state's care. All of this done under the influence of alcohol. And my family would covet your prayers. I don't guess there's a family here that doesn't struggle with the influence of alcohol. And you know, there's nobody that says, <laughs> you're not going to believe it. My, my daughter and their husband, they, they got married, and isn't it wonderful he became an alcoholic? Isn't that great? No, it's always misery. She's drinking too much. No wonder. It's not a religious thing that it's the number one drug problem in America. It's a fact. It's not a Christian thing that it's the number one drug problem in America. It is a fact. It doesn't matter if you believe there's a God or not. It is proven. The number one drug problem in America today is alcohol. As we look at the statistics you see on your screen, as we continue the series throughout this year, we're looking at several of these topics once every month or two. And let's go to the next screen, and on the next screen you'll notice there that the second one listed on the next screen is intoxication. And these are the percentage of adults that believe that these immoral behaviors are morally acceptable. Now keep in mind, even under this, this survey here, we're not talking about social drinking morally acceptable. This is surveying America and saying, when someone is intoxicated, is that morally acceptable? Over a third of all adult Americans would say that being intoxicated is perfectly morally acceptable. You just expect it. People are going to do it. But yet, when you look under the column of evangelicals, that is not that those individuals identified themselves as that. Those people are identified by the ones taking the survey. These are the people that not only are very religious, but they believe that their relationship with God should determine how they live every day of the week. Now, of that group, only 8% say that they believe that being intoxicated is an immoral uh, practice. And then you see those that are born-again Christians just by this label. That is, those that would believe to be religious, they would believe in Jesus, they would attend worship services, but they do not believe that their relationship with God should affect the way they do things day in and day out. And you see the number there. That would be 24% of those individuals with that kind of... Uh, religion, relationship with God, that's their understanding. And of course, then with the atheists, it would go up to 61% that would believe that being intoxicated is perfectly acceptable. Each time we've done this study, we have looked in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. And I ask you to turn there or either read along with me on the screen. And let's think about what Paul says as it relates to morals. And I'd like for you to keep in mind as we're, as we're reading this and as we're leaving the screen that, that looks at this survey of the Barna Research Group, remember that one of his conclusions is this. We can only expect the status of morality in America to go down. And the reason of that is, out of everybody that was surveyed, and you saw how low the levels of uh, morality are in the nation today, of all of those surveyed, the majority believed that they were highly moral. So what does that tell us? 
all of the answers lean toward immorality for the majority's sake, but yet the majority believe they're highly moral. So the conclusion can only be this. People do not believe that their own personal... They do not hold themselves personally responsible for the condition of the society of which we live. So in other words, it's my life. I can live it the way I want. And then you look back and say, well, shouldn't America be on a higher lane, a higher plane morally? Of course America should be on a higher plane. But you leave me alone. I live my life the way I want to live it. So when we have the majority of Americans living like that, based on this survey, we can only expect things to go downhill from there. Where does that leave us as Christians? That leaves us the same place it's always left Christians. We go back to the Word of God and we stand with God. And tonight... Contrary to the Sunday bulletin, tonight we're going to come back and we're going to look at passages in the New Testament where God tells us how to be delivered from this. This morning, we're going to look at the topic itself and what God said about the destruction that it causes in the lives of individuals. But tonight we'll look at how we can be delivered and God gives us great insight in 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, of some things that we need to know along these lines. But how do we get as a nation uh, and even as individuals down to this uh, plane that is a spiraling down of immorality? Let's read Ephesians, the fourth chapter, beginning verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened. So notice here. The setting is we have the futility of mind. Uh, it's a mind that's futile. What's a futile mind? A futile mind is that which is morally depraved. And so the mind has no conscience that is pure. The mind has no compass that is pointing in a moral direction. And God is the only one that can give us that. We can't give ourselves a moral direction. Whenever people start saying, well, I just feel like this is right, that's not a good way to make, base decisions on morality. Because we can feel that a lot of things are right when they're absolutely wrong. And so here, God is trying to show us, don't have a futile mind. In other words, don't have a mind that's morally depraved. Instead, if we read on farther, then even what we're going to read this morning, down in this same paragraph, we'd see that to have the mind of Christ is the answer to all this. But let's notice here, notice this spiral down, beginning at 18. Number one, they have their understanding darkened. In other words, the facts that we ought to know, we start seeing them in a different light. Well, it's really not that big a problem. Well, it really doesn't matter to God. Well, it really won't affect my relationship with my friends and family. And although these things are wrong, we start telling ourselves that. And so our understanding is darkened. Being alienated from the life of God. Well, I just don't want to be as close to those people because if I do, they might find me out. Well, I don't want to be as close to those people because they think they're goody-goodies. I don't want to be as close to those people because they would judge me. Now, are we saying that because we know we're doing wrong and we don't want to hear someone say, hey, you know, that's wrong. You know, God says make that kind of judgment. Judgment of the heart is what's sin, not judgment of actions. And then we read on. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, their mind is ignorant, their heart is blind. Notice 19. Who being past feelings, we've moved to a lower level now, being past feelings, they're callous. That's when an individual can say, I don't care who sees me drink. It's my life. I'll do with it what I want. I don't care who it hurts. I don't care what it affects. My life, my time, I'll do with it. Past feeling. Having given themselves over to lewdness, lewdness is sensual sins, and we'll notice 
at least tonight, it won't be the main point, but you'll see it over and over in the passages we go to tonight, that God has always linked together alcohol and sensual sins. And we do the same thing today. Right now, if I told you, I said, hey, one of my buddies, uh, he went out to pick up trash in a parking lot and he rode off with some woman, you'd say, what? You know, but if I said, hey, one of my buddies went to a bar last night and he rode off with some woman, you'd say, oh. We do the same thing. It's, they go hand in hand. And in the scriptures, they always go hand in hand. All kind of sensual sins are connected with uh, the influence of alcohol. To work all uncleanliness with greediness. Now let's go to the next slide and just notice, these are the six things listed that we've just read. If that helps us to see this spiral down. Understanding darkened and alienated themselves from the life of God. Ignorant because of blind hearts. Then they move past feeling, morally calloused. And then lewdness rules, sensual sin set in, other sin set in, because eventually there's greediness of all unclean conduct. Now as we think about the setting of the immorality, I would like for us this morning, and I, I, I know it, you know it, so let's just state it. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I'm not a Greek scholar. In Hebrew, there's probably 10 or 12 Hebrew words that we translate out of the Scriptures, wine or new wine or strong drink, and, and some of them are very different from others. I'd like for us just to lay on the table at least three of those words today so that we can have a proper understanding. It is somewhat confusing when we read through the Old Testament and we see sometimes that wine is a blessing. It's the sign of prosperity. And then other times we see wine being that, just as we've read today in the text today, it's that which brings woe and contentions and babblings and, and wounds without cause. And so you say, well, how in the world can the same drink be a curse and a blessing in the Word of God? And so let's take time this morning to address at least a little bit of that and then close this morning with the passage that was the text this morning just to see the destruction that God says. You know, right now, if we use the word drink, the setting would define everything as to how the word was being used. For example, if you and I were in one of the nicer restaurants of today and, and there's a bar in the next room over, as we sat down, it would be very usual, very common for a waiter or waitress to come up and say, could I serve you a drink before your meal tonight? Now, we know what's intended by that. I always act like I don't know, and I say, sure, sweet tea. But we know what the question is. The question is, can I go to the bar and get you a drink and start out with a drink tonight? So, we, now keep in mind, that's the way the word drink, because then our family goes and we stand before someone taking an order at Wendy's, and we order a few things, and they say, what do you want to drink with that? Well, it's the same word, but we know what's being asked. You want a Coke? You want sweet tea? You want water? What do you want to drink? Well, you see, in the Bible, the word wine is used in a generic sense just as that. Now, sometimes we could go back to the original language and we see it's not nearly as generic as what it first appears. But there are other Hebrew words that are used in the generic sense, just like we use the word drink, that you have to go back to the context. For example, the reading this morning, you don't have to know Hebrew to know that the context of wine and mixed wine is that of alcohol content because it was a very negative thing. These are the things that bring hardships into your life. And so he's saying, don't, don't look upon it long. Don't tarry long upon it. 
And so sometimes the context alone defines whether or not it's a drink that is alcoholic in content or it's not, just the way we use the word drink today. The first word we'll look at is shikar. And, um, you know, if... You know how, like, if you're from Brushy, Tennessee, you can't, like, roll your R's and stuff, but if I could, I could pronounce that word in Hebrew for you. You know, it would be that... that with that rolling sound, you know, after shakar. But I can't even get close to doing that. So we'll just say it's shakar, okay? And that's real close to, if you can imagine those other sounds, those hard sounds in there. And, and it is almost always translated in the Old Testament as strong drink. It's almost always tied into something negative in the Old Testament. Now, an exception to that would be when it's used as a narcotic. Whenever Lemuel's uh, that's a king's mother was advising him not to use wine or strong drink, but then says that it is to be used for those that are sick. Very similar to the New Testament example where Timothy no doubt was restraining from alcoholic beverages because in his sickness Paul had to encourage him to even take it as a medication. And so when we see the strong drink, it's definitely that which is alcoholic and content. And not only that, if you look at the bottom of that slide, notice how the word study is strong drink, and this is unusual in, in word studies, plus, plus drunkard. In other words, the word itself comes from the idea of being drunk. That's where the word comes from. So in other words, you say, okay, what's the purpose of this drink? The purpose of this drink is to get drunk. That's how we get the word, the original Hebrew word that God speaks of over and over, a strong drink. He's saying not only is it the drink, but look what it leads to. And so just by word study alone, already the danger is, is heightened in our mind that that's the purpose of strong drink. All right, let's look at the second word. And tirush, of course, there should be some, a rolling R in there too, but tirush there is a word that is most often times, and, and just almost every time, it would be rare, very rare for this not to be the case. It is always talking about the new wine, except in our language today, we talk about the new juice. In other words, it comes from the word that is the action of pressing out. So you take your, your grapes, it's harvest time. Do you have a great harvest this year? Oh, yeah. You wouldn't believe all of the juice we harvested this year. Well, how's that going to be said in the Old Testament? You wouldn't believe all of the new wine. And so when you read in your Scriptures, for example, there in Proverbs, the third chapter, let's read verse 10. And, and verse 9 is where he talks about giving your first fruits to God. You remember last month we studied about that? We give our first fruits to God. And then if we give our first fruits to God, God will give back to us. And that's what verse 10 is talking about. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with tarush. Not with shakar, with new wine. With, with new juice. And so when we read through the Old Testament and we see this new wine, if you're thinking, oh, there it is, alcoholic content, that's not right at all. This is the juice that has just come out when the presses have been plentiful and produced this. And so oftentimes in the Scriptures, we're, we're going to see that as a blessing. It's something wonderful how God has blessed the farmer, if you will. Now, there's a third time that oftentimes it is speaking of an alcoholic content, uh, but it doesn't demand it. And so we really have to use 
the context to see. And this is the word yayin. And yayin is the word that definitely could go back in its root meaning to that which is fermented. But it does not demand that. Probably most of the time we could say, definitely the majority of the time in the Old Testament, that is the setting. By the way, today, the text that we're studying from, you see we have the word yayin. Then we say, well, do you think he's talking about fresh juice that's been pressed out? No, I don't think so. Look at all that it does to the life of an individual. Okay, this must be the intoxicated, uh, the drink that can bring one to intoxication. Now, briefly, we'll mention a fourth word, and this is the Greek word, oinos, uh, oinos. And it, too, comes from the Hebrew word, yayin, that we just left. So it's pretty much similar in definition. So therefore, when we read this word in the New Testament, we have to do the same thing. And that is, we have to look at the context and say, okay, odds are it may be wine. In other words, a drink that has um, alcohol content, but it may not. Let's look and see what the context uh, demands in this. And so, and that's so important in studying any verse or any biblical phrase or any word is to look at the whole context. So this morning... If you have your Bibles still open, or go back, if you will, to Proverbs, the 23rd chapter. And let's look here at this slide, or in your Scriptures. And if you'll note, don't want to be misleading, Proverbs 23 and verse 29 is on the screen. But if you'll notice, the words, of course, in parentheses are words that I've added, which are simply just notations of these lines. Because now, uh, just in the last few minutes that we have left, let's just quickly mention, the Lord says, hey... Here's what happens. Now, we don't have a slide for this, but if you have your Bible, let me again read to you verse 30 so we can make sure we're all on the same mindset as we study this. This is a description of those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. So here is alcohol content and the Lord saying, if you make this what you stay with, this is what you can expect in your life. And so let's read it. First of all, he says in 23, he says... Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Now notice, we have there lamenting. That's the woe. Does alcohol cause the woe, or do people turn to it because of the woe in their life? It could be either way. But if it's turned to because of the woe in their life, it doesn't remove the woe. I've heard someone say, and this, was, this is so sad, I've heard someone say, alcohol will remove a lot of things out of your life. It'll remove your furniture. It'll move your children's school clothes. It'll remove your spouse. If it becomes the ruler of our lives, it'll remove a lot of things. In other words, no one's life is blessed because they drink. It's just, there's no exception to that. It doesn't bring a blessing. It's, it brings woe. And this is what God says. He's looking at the wine with alcohol content. He says, this is what it does. Woe is the one. There's sorrows. And, and there when it says want in the sense of desire, in other words, there's something lacking in life. And the person says, I'm going to turn to this. That's not the solution. And let's be sure, let's pause for just a moment and say, there are solutions. There are things better. And if we as a church family, as I as an individual, if there's anything that we can do to help find solutions, let's not think that turning to substances will offer solution. Finding a strong relationship with God and with those that love God is so important. And I beg you this morning, 
If you're struggling with this, don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on God. But don't think turning to it is the answer. And so the third line that we see here is who has contentions. I remember being a little boy in downtown Nashville, and I don't know what in the world I was doing there. But Dad said we saw an ambulance outside of a bar, and I mean they were being pretty rough with this uh, gurney here. I mean they were bringing it out quick, and they slammed it down to the ground real quick, and they kind of threw that fellow in there, and they slammed the doors. And, you know, it kind of took me back. And I said, Dad, what in the world was that? He said, I assume there probably was a brawl in there, and they're probably trying to get out of the middle of that brawl as quick as they can. And I don't remember many of the details of what Dad said that day, but I remember him giving me this message. He said, Son, anytime there's alcohol around for a long enough period of time, you can count on some brawls. My father didn't come up with that. His father came up with it. Your heavenly Father gave us that. What does it cause? God says it causes a lot of fights. A lot of spouses have conflict because of this. A lot of children and parents have conflict because of this. A lot of friends, a lot of workers with their employees have conflicts because of this. And then third, who has complaints? Now, that'd be New King James. King James say babbling. Which one's correct? Because they're kind of different messages there. Maybe both of them are correct. That it does lead to complaints, but it also leads to a lot of babblings. A lot of things said that just doesn't make sense. You know, today, if if somebody got up here and they said words completely mixed up and messed up and slurred, we'd say, what in the world is wrong? If we hear a drunkard do that, we say, hmm, he's drunk. Think of the difference. What's the difference? It's the influence of alcohol. We read on, who has wounds without cause? These are wounds that are unacceptable. In other words, they can't be explained. If a fellow walked up to you this morning and shook hands and said, oh, don't squeeze too tight, you looked at a deep scar in his hand and said, how did you get that? He said, oh, I, I stopped to help a, uh, a little elderly lady. She was on the side of the interstate, and I was trying to change her tire, and I cut my hand real bad. And, you know, we say, bless your heart. That's a wound with cause. He knows why he has that wound, and it's a very good cause that he has that wound. You know, a life of an alcoholic will oftentimes have wounds that they don't know the cause. They honestly don't remember why they have that, that dotted eye or that, that uh, injury on the head. And the truth is, it's an unacceptable reason they give it. Don't know why, and really there wasn't anything worth it uh, to bring it into our life. God revealed that to us hundreds and even thousands of years ago. And then he says the redness of eyes, speaking about the health. It affects us. You know, the one thing that people oftentimes like to hide is alcoholism. But isn't it amazing that the way we're created, we can't hide it for long periods of time. We see the bloodshot eyes. We see the heavy bags under the eyes. We see the trembling hands. The signs are given away. Why? The person's wanting to hide it. As much as anything in their life, they're wanting to hide it. They don't want people to know. Well, why can't it be hidden? Usually it can't be hidden even because of the health factors. Eventually. It may take longer instead of sooner, but eventually it'll be known. Let's read on the next few verses here with some quick concluding comments. We see as we read verse 31 and 32, 
Do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. Why? At the last. Now notice that phrase. That is a huge phrase to understanding what God is telling us here. At the last, it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. This morning, because of the statistics and because of just living a few years, I understand that there would be several here this morning that would say, I don't agree with you. I've been drinking for the last 15 years, and I do not have a problem with controlling my drink. I'd like for you this morning to look from the passage we're looking at and ask yourself, do you believe God? This isn't about me and what I believe, except in my relationship with me and my God. But all of us have to decide whether or not we believe God. God says that holding on to the wine is like holding on to a snake. I want you to think for just a moment. What if every wine glass and every can of beer was a snake? And you go to your first social gathering and and you're 18 or you're 21 or you're 24 or whatever and, and everybody's carrying snakes around by the tail. And they look all right. And so finally you get the courage, if you want to call it that, one day to hold the snake by the tail. And you walked around and talked with everybody all night with the snake by the tail, and you set it down at the end of the party, and you went home, and all was all right. The snake didn't bother me. Now, what's his phrase here? He says, at the last, it bites like a serpent. So you go to your next party, and it's easier now because last time the snake didn't bite you, so you pick it up by the tail, and you walk around for the next party. And you do that for a year or two. But you've noticed that you look more forward to grabbing the snake by the tail. And it's been so gradual, you haven't noticed, but every party, the snake wraps around your arm a little more and a little more. God says, eventually, eventually, you go to set the snake down, and it's bitten. The man's held the snake, But at last, the snake is holding the man. At what point will that happen? Who knows? That's why people become alcoholics. They don't know at what point. One out of every ten that tastes liquor become alcoholics sometime in their life. And so the challenge is, what does God say about it? It refers to the poisonous snake at the end of 32, and then we have to close. So let's read quickly, 33, 34, and 35. Your eyes will see strange things. The King James will say strange uh, uh, women. In other words, again, God is linking sensual sins along with alcohol uh, problems. And, And then he says your heart will utter perverse things. So we see that it's so hard to live a life that's influenced by alcohol and live a life of moral purity in other areas also. Verse 34, Yes, you will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea or the one who lies at the top of the mast. In other words, there's instability. Can you imagine if you're the one on the top of a mast and the boat's moving just a little bit, the top of the mast is moving a lot, and so finally the person comes down and says, I'm getting sick up there. I've got to go lay down. Well, the Lord's saying that's what the influence of alcohol does. It makes things unstable in your life. It puts you to the point where... You're out of commission. 
And it's the important things in life that go out of commission. It's the relationships and, and being the, the person of character and integrity that we want to be. Those things become unstable. 35, going back to the, uh, uh, the insensibility, the violence. They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. So see, it's the alcohol that's causing the person not to even be able to reason. The next day you say, hey, how'd you get that injury? I don't know. Well, did it hurt? I don't know. I didn't feel a thing. Now, we just read that long list of things that God says, look what alcohol will do. So the person now is passed out on the floor. They wake up the next morning. Surely they're going to say, I've got to stop that. And God says, they say, when shall I awake that I may seek another drink? God warns us there. It's addictive. We just don't play with a snake and then lay it down. For the snake will one day take bite. We don't play with the snake and say, I still want to play by my rules. Mothers that would be good mothers do things they would never do under the influence of alcohol. Husbands that would be awesome husbands do things they would never do under the influence of alcohol. People abandon their God that would not have abandoned their God under the influence, if it were not for the influence of alcohol. Friends, this morning, I don't ask you to listen to me. I ask you to look in the Word of God. God speaks strongly of the destruction that's caused in lives because of the influence of alcohol. Tonight, we'll look at some of those from the New Covenant, and then we'll look at how God says to be delivered from those. But we're living in a society where we're bombarded. Our children, it seems that statistically that they're starting to drink at younger ages. It seems that it's having a greater impact upon our families. As a nation, we're hurting. And there's no doubt, families here, some of us are hurting desperately. What's the answer? The answer is, let's just listen to God. Let's try to get our families to listen to God. And let's help each other through these times. If your life isn't right with God, if you've never been baptized into Christ for the mission of your sins, the beauty is, He forgives. That is the awesome characteristic of God, a gracious, forgiving God. If you have been baptized into Christ and somewhere, something, some way, somehow, you've separated yourself from God, won't you repent of that and come back to Him this morning? And if there's any way that we can help and encourage or support or study or pray with or help in any way, during this invitation song or even afterwards, if you'll let us know, we want to do what we can do to help each other along. If we can help in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.